I don't think it, oh, did you do that or did I? You did. Okay, it's not going to work. All right, that's all right. All right, all right. All right, now it's working. All right, good, 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 good. Okay, so uh, we're continuing in our sermon series, Worship for Weary Souls, Communal Habits and Daily Rhythms of Grace. We're looking at the parts of the Daily Prayer Project. So again, as Chris said, if you have not picked one of those up, please pick one of those up and uh, use it in your daily devotions, morning and evening. And we're trying to unpack a little bit about why we're doing this through this sermon series. Uh, Well, this week, as I was prepping for this sermon, I picked up a book that uh, I read in seminary that was one of my favorites by one of my favorite seminary profs, Michael Kruger, called Canon Revisited. And I'll refer to this a little bit later. Um, But in the book, he references a story that I found super fascinating. uh, And I'm going to use that story. So I'm going to give him credit. I'm using it in a different way than he did. So I I just wanted to give him credit so I didn't steal it. Um, But it's a story about a, a man named Joshua Bell who's a musician. Maybe you have heard of him. He's a famous violinist. And he, is, uh, he was uh, sort of a child prodigy of violin and uh, has played all over the world, has played for kings, has played in shows that cost $1,000 per ticket, all these crazy things. But Joshua Bell decided, <clears throat> I can't remember, uh, this was a few years ago, can't remember exactly when, but he decided that he was going to try an experiment. He was going to play a free concert in the D.C. Metro lobby. He just set up shop and played his violin. He played his $3.5 million violin in the subway station and played perhaps some of the most beautiful music on the planet. He is world-renowned. About a thousand people walked right by him in his little bucket that he had for, so he played for 45 minutes in his little bucket that he had. He made $32.17, not even the price of an average ticket to see Joshua Bell perform. People walked by in their busyness, not recognizing that they had one of the greatest musicians on the planet right in front of them, freely playing Gorgeous music for 45 minutes. Reason I bring this up is actually I think this is exactly what you and I do often when it comes to God's word. When it comes to the Bible, we actually have God's word, God, the God of the universe speaking to us authoritatively. And many of us have multiple copies on our shelves and they sit there on our shelves and we walk by it just simply ignoring it because we actually don't recognize what we have in front of us. If we thought more about what was in front of us when we had God's word, we would treat it differently. If we really reckoned with what it is that we have in the scriptures, we would order our lives differently to see how it could affect our lives. I think there's a similar situation going on in the scriptures in John chapter 6 concerning people that have Jesus right in front of him. And so I want to set up this story for you this morning, and we're going to use this as a launching point to talk about the next section of the Daily Prayer Project, which is the lesson. Uh, Really, the reading of God's word is is the the portion that we're looking at in the Daily Prayer Project. So in John chapter 6, Jesus has been uh, traveling around with his disciples. This is early in his ministry, and he just fed 
5,000 people with a miraculous sign. Right? They are traveling together and they go to this place. We actually referred to this a little bit last week. They, he takes his disciples to a desolate place to get alone and the crowds follow him and he teaches them all day long. And then he tells his disciples, hey, we need to feed them. And they're like, this is ridiculous. Send them away. We don't have the money. And really, you want to blow our whole ministry budget on one meal? Like, what is your problem, man? Like, we can't do that. And they find five loaves and some fish, and Jesus multiplies it to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. In a miraculous thing. He creates for them new bread that they eat. Well, when this happens, uh, picking up the story, I'm going to pick up little chunks of the story uh, from the scriptures a couple of times here. And so John 6, after this happens, starting in verse 14, Chris, you want to move on to that? Yeah, there you go. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. The people see a miraculous sign and they say, this is the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus, in an odd move, slips away when he recognizes they are going to try to make him king. We'll we'll get back to that here in a little bit. But as he slips away, his disciples leave for the other side. And then there's this story in between where Jesus walks on the water of the lake to get to the other side. Another miraculous thing. In the morning, the people find out, hey, there's, the disciples are gone. There's this boat gone. We don't actually know what happened. So we're going to go to the other side to find Jesus. They get to the other side, and they're like, wait, Jesus, how would you get here? They don't really recognize what's going on, which is part of the story is not recognizing what's going on. So they go to the other side. They find him, and they ask him, to, to, uh, or they, they find him again, and Jesus says this to them in 26. Jesus replied to them, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want you to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now this is one of the most, uh, we see this all the time, right? We saw this all the way through the book of Exodus all the time, is that the people of God often respond in the most absurd ways to what God is doing. Think about this. Jesus just multiplied bread to feed this entire crowd. And now they're like, dude, would you show us a sign so we could believe in you? Right? Now, before we judge them too harshly, how often in your own life have you asked God for something and he shows up in a miraculous way and you're like, dude, what are you doing? Can you just, uh, can you help me out here? Because we miss what God is doing often. 
Because we're concerned with our own priorities and our own expectations, which is exactly why Jesus slipped away. They wanted to make him king. They expected the prophet to come and to overthrow Roman rule and to set up his kingdom. And they were, Jesus is it. Look at what he's doing. And Jesus knew my kingdom is not like that. And so I need to slip away because I am not going to be bound by your expectations of what I'm going to do. So in the midst of this, they say, well, show us a sign so that we can believe in you. It's ironic that the sign that they pick is manna from heaven because he literally just did it. It's like, what were you guys paying attention yesterday? I did provide this. But the problem is you didn't understand why I provided it. You didn't understand actually what was going on, which relates exactly to the situation. If you remember when we were walking through Exodus, this is exactly the situation with the manna from heaven. The people of God misunderstood the way in which God was going to provide for them, which is why when God commanded them, hey, gather enough food on the, on the, uh, before the Sabbath and don't go out and gather on the Sabbath. And what did they do? They went out to try and gather on the Sabbath because they didn't trust God, which is exactly the point that Jesus is making. There's one who has come down from heaven and gives life to the world. So moving on, 41 Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he said, I am the bread of life who has come down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? You see, these are folks that have been familiar with Jesus from his childhood. They've known his parents. For him to say, I am the bread of life. See, they were expecting a prophet who would speak for God, who would come and set up his kingdom and who would bless them and overthrow Roman rule and be their leader. They were not expecting God himself to come in the person of his son. They were not expecting someone who would come from this humble beginnings as we've been learning in this children's story, this surprising beginning. They're like, we know your dad, we know your mom. You are not bread come down from heaven. You are Jesus. Who are you to say these things? So they murmur against him. So Jesus responds to them and says a couple of things. He says, actually, I am the bread of heaven, and you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood in order to be a part of this kingdom. It takes a dark turn real fast. It's like, Jesus, dude, chill out, man. Like, what are you doing there? So they murmur again, and Jesus says this in 53. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. Now, Obviously, Jesus is speaking in metaphors here. He doesn't intend for his disciples to eat 
uh, actually of his flesh and blood, nor is he talking about uh, a, a transformation of the communion elements that we'll observe later into his actual body and blood, as some uh, church traditions teach. That's not clearly not what he's talking about here, because he's already told us the only work that's required of the people, right? He said to believe on the one that has been sent. So what he's talking about in terms of eating the flesh and drinking the blood, he's talking about what he is going to do on the cross in giving up his life for them and believing in him. But he's saying it in a pretty intense way. Not in a way that's very seeker sensitive, not in a way that's very uh, uh, modeling some sort of like, hey, uh, you know, if there was a, a strategy meeting of the disciples, they would not say, hey, I think we should talk about your flesh and blood and eating it. I think that'll go over really well after you fed them a lot of bread. Like he's going against every one of these strategies. And so much so that the result of this one teaching causes many to walk away. John 6, starting in verse 60. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. So he said to them, does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. So these crowds are doubting, and then he hears that his very disciples are doubting. Those who have committed to following him, not just the twelve, but the broader group that are committed to following Jesus. Go on. Then he said, this is why, that is why I said that the people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of, that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. I wanted to share this whole story to get to this one point, to give some context. Because the people have expectations for what Jesus is going to be like. And when he declares something contrary to what their expectations are, they turn away. Will the disciples leave them also? To whom would we go? Is Peter's response. To whom would we go? That's the question for us this morning. To whom will we go? To whom will we go? What I mean by this question is, who has ultimate authority in your life? To whom do you listen for the most important questions in your life? Who you are, what your purpose is, where life can be found? Who are you going to listen to to answer those very questions? We started this series by looking at Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. In which Jesus says this, then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Let me teach you. You see, 
Connecting these two things, Jesus saying, or Peter saying, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus saying, let me teach you. What I want to suggest for you this morning is that the lesson portion of the daily prayer project, the reading of God's word, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is how we learn from Jesus. Learning from God's word is learning from Jesus, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So, I want to make the argument this morning for you why we should go to Jesus, why we should say along with Peter, who else are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life, and why that means for us a devotion to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Because you might be thinking, all right, that story makes sense. To whom are we going to go? We want want Jesus' words. But, how do we get Jesus' words? You know, actually, Jesus is one of the most important historical figures, regardless, I mean, obviously we would argue that he's the most important historical figure, but even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't subscribe to following Jesus, he has had more influence on the world than any other person. And he never wrote a single thing. Jesus never wrote a single thing. How are we to get connected to Jesus, to learn from him, to know his words, which have eternal life, if he never wrote anything and we don't live in the first century? How are we to get this? How will we learn about him? Well, Jesus actually gives us clues in the Gospel of John about how this is going to work. In John 14, Jesus is meeting with his disciples in the Last Supper following or right before he is about to go to the cross and he teaches them a lot of really important things. This is called the upper room discourse from John 14 to 17. It's one of the most important places where we can learn about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Now, we learn a couple of really, really important things here. One, we learn that Jesus speaks on behalf of his Father. So, When Jesus says to the crowds, I am the true bread from heaven that comes down, he is saying, I am the word of God to you. Remember, in the Old Testament, God says, do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. You see, Jesus makes a connection between the bread that comes from God, right, and God's word. And he's saying, I am that. And John has already made this connection, right? When John declares in the beginning of his gospel that the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God's word has come in the person of Jesus. You see, we worship a speaking God. In the Old Testament, when God first begins, right, in Genesis 1, does it say, in the beginning God spoke. We worship a speaking God. And when God speaks, we can know him. And Jesus is saying, I speak only what the Father has given me. I represent the Father. Now, 
I'm going to go back to the Father. How are you to learn from me? Well, God, the Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell among you. Now, there's a thing for us in here that the Holy Spirit dwells with us, right? And I mean, there's some crazy, awesome things. This is one of my favorite passages. Said it again. Because there's some crazy things in here. It says the Father's going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to come and dwell with you. And the Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell with you. The triune God dwells in you, Christian, when you believe in Jesus and get the Holy Spirit in you. So there's some incredible things that we can learn for us about learning from Jesus, but I think he's also pointing to something very specific. He's speaking, if you want to go back to that, he's speaking to his disciples, and he says, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Well, what does that mean? I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit coming to the apostles to the writing of the New Testament. That the Holy Spirit was involved in the writing of the 27 books of the New Testament that we have. Peter makes reference to this in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, Peter says this, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When we received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly dearly loved son who brings me great joy. He's referencing the transfiguration in which Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus on the mountain and see God pull back the veil of Jesus' humanity to see his divine glory. Just like when Moses saw God, right? When Moses is hidden, we just talked about this not that long ago, when Moses is hidden in in the mountain and sees God's glory, that's what Peter, James, and John got to see. It was incredible. They're saying, we saw this, and we have told you what we saw. But this is what Peter goes on to say. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. Now, wait a second. You see what he's saying? Because we saw God, because we saw Jesus in his divine glory, just a little glimpse of it, we have even greater confidence in the prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament. He's saying, I trust my Bible more because I saw Jesus' glory. You see, his religious experience, his glorious experience, actual experience of seeing Jesus makes him trust the Bible more. Not long for another experience, but trust his Bible more, which is what he's trying to get them to trust. He's saying, see, I got to see Jesus's glory, and now I have even greater confidence in the prophets. So you should have great confidence in the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Other translations talk about the Holy Spirit carrying them along. What we believe about the Bible is that human authors really wrote every word. And they were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that God is writing what he intends to say to his people. That's what Peter's referring to, which is exactly what Jesus tells him is going to happen 
for them. Now, when Peter says this, he's referring to the Old Testament, okay? So what about the New Testament then? Because you said we're going to learn about Jesus from the way in which the Holy Spirit's going to give the apostles the Holy Spirit to, uh, to, or the way in which Jesus is going to use the Holy Spirit to give the apostles the writing of the New Testament. What about that? Well, in this same book, the end of this book, Peter says this in chapter 3. He says, and remember our Lord's patient gives, patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all his letters, all his letters, meaning more than one, some of his comments are hard to understand. Thank the Lord for Peter. Anybody else read Paul and be like, what the heck are you saying, man? Peter was like, dude, I don't know what you're saying. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different. Catch this. Just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. See, Peter is writing In the early church, he's writing in the first century. And he is saying what Paul is writing is on par with the Old Testament. This is crazy, guys. Okay, like I I geek out a lot about this stuff, so I'm going to try and, but I'm not going to hold it back at all. I'm going to let it go, right? The reality is this is crazy and not what you hear in popular culture around what the Bible is. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But the reality of what I'm trying to say is what Peter is saying here is that the Old Testament, right, is to be trusted because of his experience with Jesus. And the New Testament is on par with the Old Testament and is to be trusted even greater than my experience with Jesus. And so you can have great confidence to learn about Jesus and to learn from God himself in the Bible. That's the argument that Peter is making and that I am declaring to you. There's no way to get the words of Jesus without the scriptures. Hebrews 1 starts this way. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets, speaking to all the variety of the Old Testament. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. God has spoken by his Son, and his Son, who believed and followed the Old Testament, and who, by the Holy Spirit, gave the apostles the New Testament, this is how God speaks. So, we believe that we can learn these things, we can learn from Jesus, by the Bible, okay? Now, if, as I've made that argument, if you're like, at any point, you're like, wait, I think you missed a step or I don't quite understand, please talk to me after service. I wanna help you have confidence that when you pick up the Bible, you are hearing from God himself. Because here's the reality. If we know that, We'd be like those travelers in the D.C. metro who say, wait a second, everyone stop. Do you know who this is? Let's listen to this music. That's what we want to do with God's word. So what do we believe about the Bible? Well, we believe the Bible is infallible. Has no, it is inerrant. It has no errors. It does not fail. 
it is the final authority for the church. Now, why do we believe that about the Bible? Well, that's what the Bible tells us about itself. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 says this, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Scripture tells us that Scripture is true and right. Now, if you're a skeptic to that argument, you might say that sounds very circular. A square is a square because a square is a square. Like, how how do you say Scripture is the final authority because Scripture says it's the final authority? Well, uh, I want to make reference to a couple of books today, but one is Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor in our denomination. It's a really short and readable book super helpful on God's word, just kind of walks through these things. And he addresses this in this book. He says this uh, about the questions of circular. These are reasonable questions, but they need not hold us up here. Both questions have to do with first principles. And a certain form of circularity is unavoidable whenever we try to defend our first principles. You can't establish the supreme authority of your supreme authority by going to some other lesser authority. Yes, the logic is circular, but no more so than the secularist defending reason by reason or the scientist touting the authority of science based on science. See, the point of his argument is you cannot have an ultimate authority and then say, we know that's the ultimate authority because this other authority says that it's the ultimate authority. Then this is no longer the ultimate authority. So this is true not just for the Christian. This is true for everyone. Whatever you ascribe to as an ultimate authority, if you don't receive information about that ultimate authority from it, then whatever you're using to confirm that ultimate authority is your real ultimate authority. So there's no reason for us to avoid. I think sometimes for Christians, there's this avoidance of, well, why do you believe the Bible? Because the Bible tells us to. And there's, there's, like, we avoid that as the answer. That's a good answer. That's a real good answer. We believe the Bible because the Bible tells us to believe it. And then you can actually walk through why that's a good answer and talk through those things, not in a, a jerky way, right? Like, there's a way to say that and be a real jerk, and that's not helpful. But there's a way to say that and, and actually challenge someone to really think about Where do they set their ultimate authority? Any ultimate authority has to authenticate itself. And that's what Kruger, Michael Kruger, in this book, Canon Revisited, if you want to really geek out, this is the book to get. Probably one of my favorite books that I read in all of seminary. It's really good. Really, really helpful. Uh, There's some technical pieces to it, but it is readable. But Kruger talks about a a model of us understanding the scriptures as a self off, self authentic uh, take a drink self authenticating look at that i got it 
self-authenticating canon. The canon meaning the, which books belong in the Bible. There are real questions about this, guys. We should be honest about all of this stuff. And what I love about Kruger is he goes right at honest truth about which books were doubted, which books were readily accepted, what, what, what kind of manuscript evidence do we have, what, all of these things. But what he says is, if the Bible is what it says it is, it should authenticate itself. He has three qualifications for why it should authenticate itself. It has divine qualities, right? If this is God speaking, it should speak like God, meaning it should be true, meaning it should be beautiful, meaning it should transform lives, because that's what it says it's going to do, and that's what God says he's going to do. It needs to have, in reference to the New Testament, it needs to have apostolic origins. It needs to be written by or connected to the work of an apostle. And it needs to have corporate reception. The Bible is God's word for his people. So that means the corporate body of Christ ought to receive it. Now, we can't get into all of these pieces in one sermon. But this book is available. And also, all of my uh, seminary lectures for every class I took are available free online. Uh, But one of the classes I took with Dr. Kruger has a significant portion of it related to canon. Uh, and dealing with uh, some of the problem books and like why we believe these books are written by who they say they are and all these things. They're so good. He's a great lecturer, um, even better than a writer. And so uh, if you want those, talk to me and we can, we can ha- uh, talk through those things. Uh, but also, I want to say a word to if you feel pretty skeptical to the Bible. Please, let's talk. I'd love to just answer your questions and to walk through those things and to hear your concerns, to hear why you doubt the Bible. Because the reality is there's a lot of popular level work by what I would call so-called scholars that's pretty bad. Internally contradictory, established doubt to authorship on shaky grounds. There's a lot of real poor scholarship when it comes to this that's readily available. Right? Like, if you watch anything on the History Channel about the Bible, I can assure you that it's not true. (laughs) Or mostly not true. There's just a lot of really bad scholarship out there that's really easy to defend. But Christians get caught up in it because it's kind of scary. Because you're like, well, this scholar told me that there's all these contradictions in the Bible. Yeah, but he didn't tell you most of it is somebody misspelled a name. Most of it is, oh, this number and this number were different. Most of it is because not trained scribes were transcribing the Bible. And you might think, well, that's a reason we should doubt it. No, that's a reason we should believe it all the more. Because everyone tried to get the Bible to everyone as quickly as possible. It's crazy. In terms of, there are legitimate questions. Absolutely legitimate questions. We don't have any of the original manuscripts. Not a single one. That's a legitimate question. But, you know, we don't have very many, trans, uh, we don't have any original documents for any works of antiquity. And the closest we have is like a thousand years removed from when it was written. And we've got like a hundred years removed from the New Testament from when it was written. That's like a 900 year, you know, to the good. Uh, works of antiquity that are generally accepted have like 10 copies. We have thousands of copies. I mean, we, we have brand new technologies that were developed by Christians 
and used by Christians, like the Codex, which is a book form instead of scrolls, so that you could carry more of the New Testament together and not lug it with big, heavy scrolls. Transformed how the written word was, tra- uh, was transmitted in the ancient world. All of these things, and I could go on and on and on, but I won't. But there are legitimate questions, but we can really have confidence that when you open your Bible, what is written in your Bible is what was written by the original authors, and it was written by those that actually, who, who they say they are, and we have far more documentary evidence with manuscripts and other things than any other work of antiquity. More copies and earlier copies, and it is really impressive. Now, I will readily admit the stakes are far higher to accepting that Paul wrote Romans and what Romans says is true than that Homer wrote the Iliad. (laughs) I will readily accept that the stakes are far higher to believing that the Bible was really written by these folks and really is true. Absolutely. But just because the stakes are far higher doesn't mean we shouldn't reckon with the real questions of it. And just as someone might say, you believe that the Bible is God's word because you already believe in the supernatural, we might respond by saying, you believe it's not God's word because you've already rejected the supernatural. The arguments go back and forth. There are real ways to wrestle through these things. And if you yourself are doubting God's word, please come talk to me. I would love to just talk and and wrestle through these things and, and, and walk through this stuff not in a condemning sort of rough way or, or like, you know, having real doubts and concerns about this is legitimate. It's hard because none of you were there. But most of you haven't been to the other side of the world either, and yet you believe it's there. Like when you get on a plane and fly to the other side of the globe, you believe it's there because someone else has been there and told you it's there. So you already readily trust someone else's word to verify facts of the world. Let's do that with the Bible. Now, my assertion is that those around Jesus in John 6, right, walk away from the Bible, maybe, or walk away from Jesus, maybe because they doubt whether Jesus is really the prophet, but likely they really walked away because they didn't like what Jesus said. My assertion is that if you're struggling with doubts about the Bible, you might want to walk away, not primarily because of those doubts, because I think there are real answers to those things, but because you don't like what it says. Because you don't like what it says. That's what causes me to want to walk away. When I read something I don't like, I want to walk away. 2 Timothy 4 says this, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. This is exactly what the world tries to convince us to do. The liturgy of Jesus is learning from God's word. The liturgy of the world is listening to whatever pundit tells us what we want to hear. Who do we listen to? 
We listen in the world and us ourselves, if we're honest, to those who have a platform, to those who are charismatic, to those we already agree with. Not just in the world, but we do this too. There are subtle ways, right? We probably don't reject all, or outright reject God's word. Maybe everything I said earlier, you're like, yeah, I don't have any of those doubts. I readily believe God's word. I think there are good reasons to believe it. I trust God's word. But what then do you give yourself to learn from? Are your ethics informed by the Bible or by your favorite politician, celebrity, athlete, or actor? Are your politics informed by the Bible or by your party platform? Do you conform your plans and desires to the word of God or to what the latest influencers tell you? Now, some of you might think, well, no, no, no. Okay, you crazy Christians are just like, you just believe what someone tells you to believe, but I am an independent free thinker. Well, how do you know that you're not culturally conditioned version, you're not a culturally conditioned version of an independent free thinker, right? How, how do you know that that thing that you reject, you're rejecting because it's you rejecting it as an independent free thinker or because culturally you've been conditioned to think in that way? The reality is we're all culturally conditioned. Let's just be honest about it. We should be honest that we are all culturally conditioned, we're all shaped by our own biases. We all have them. So it's not, so, so we need to be honest about that. We can admit it, and then we can actually unpack what's good and right and true. When we admit those biases, we can unpack what's good and right and true. It's not, will I learn from and be shaped by an ultimate authority, but it's to whom will I go? To whom will I go? But let's take this a step further. For us as believers, who do we learn the Bible from? Do you just believe everything the Instagram and TikTok preachers tell you to believe about the scriptures? Do you just trust everything your favorite podcasting pastor says? Do you just trust everything that I say? Please no. The model that we ought to have for us learning from God's word is found in Acts 17. When Paul preaches to the Bereans, this is what happens. You want to go to that next one, Chris? That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. You've heard me say it here before, but when you agree with me or disagree with me, show me in the text that you disagree or agree with me. Show me in God's word. Don't just trust what I say. Investigate for yourself. This is why we're doing this daily prayer project. If we are to know the scriptures, if we are to know how to listen for God's word, if we are to know whether someone is teaching something true or false, we need to know God's word. And not just me. You need to know God's word. You need to investigate and then challenge where I'm wrong. And then believe where I'm right. Now, there's a misstep that we could take in having this high view of the Bible. 
The liturgy of religion would move us towards legalism and fundamentalism. We could take a very harsh view of the Bible. No, 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 no itching ears here. We're going to believe what God's word says, which means no questions, no doubts, no concerns, no learning from anyone else. This is an overreaction. This is a massive overreaction. All truth is God's truth, and we can learn things from everyone, and we can see how it conforms to or disagrees with God's word so that we can judge whether it's true or false. But we can learn from everyone. But we contend, if we're afraid of slipping into learning from the world, we contend towards legalism, which would say, if I don't have my quiet time with God, I am not going to receive any sort of blessing. And if I miss my quiet time, I feel great condemnation. Does the Bible actually delight us? No, we read it to check off a box so we don't feel guilty. Well, that's not the point. Or we can slip into fundamentalism. Don't learn from anyone else. And weaponize the Bible and use the Bible against other people. To judge and condemn. To cause division and hate. This is really destructive. And is the cause for many to run away from Jesus and from the Word. That draw is very real. That draw towards what is popularly termed deconstruction, from fun, uh, moving away from fundamentalist views of the Bible. That's a very real draw. And we need to be aware of it and make sure we don't encourage others to run to it by the way in which we talk about the Bible, the way in which we treat others with the Bible. And yet, if you feel that draw, let me challenge you gently. Where are you going to go? To whom will you go? To whom will you go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. You see, the Bible is meant to be the experience like a child who thinks they are lost from a loving parent in a store. They've turned around and their parents are gone and they feel this sense of loss and then they turn the corner and to see them and to run into their arms. That's the experience we're to have with God's word. The world wants to convince us that the Bible is simply a tool of oppression and we have better things to give us the good life. Does it? It's my question. I can't convince you that it does or doesn't. I really can't convince you that God's word is better, that it gives life while the wisdom of the world doesn't offer it. I'm simply asking you to try the Bible, give yourself to it, and decide whether or not it does. Let's learn of Jesus and decide where gives life. Because the Holy Spirit is the only one that can convince us that God's word is true. So, if we're to give ourselves to the liturgy of Jesus, we need to learn how to read the Bible. And not just to read it, but to understand it in its context, to to wrestle through all of the challenges, the doubts, all of those things, right? So I want to recommend one more resource for you. This is uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. It's phenomenal. This is the uh, first year we had interns. We went through this book together as interns. goes through genre by genre of scripture, how to read and understand the Bible. Super easy to read, massively helpful. 
So, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Highly recommend it. Uh, another book, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Uh, this is really quick and easy. Gives you an overview of the whole story of the Bible. So, helpful thing. Both of those are helpful summaries, but the reality is just to read the Bible is the start. Just start reading it. In this daily prayer project, just read the lessons, read the scriptures, and come to Jesus. Come to me. Are you weary? Come learn from me. That's what Jesus tells us. Now, there will be hard things. When Jesus doesn't align with our politics, when Jesus doesn't align with our desires, when he doesn't align with our plans or our expectations or our comforts, Will we run away? Will we turn away and desert him? Or will we turn to him just like Peter does and say, to whom will we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Remember, Jesus was teaching about where, when they turned away, Jesus was teaching about his body and his blood, referencing what he was going to do on the cross for them. Giving up his body and spilling his blood for your sins and mine so that we can have eternal life. And the point is to believe in him, to trust in him. Isaiah 55, one through three says this, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does not, does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. This is in reference to Jesus. Anyone, anyone and everyone, no matter who you are, where you're from, no matter what you offer, you can come and learn from the God of the universe. It's like a free concert by a world-class musician. Except even better, you don't even have to throw in a tip. You get to come and drink from the water of eternal life for free. This is what God's word does for us. Isaiah goes on to say, the rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all. All I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. This is certainly true of the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished all that God intended for Him for you and my salvation. For us to know God and to be loved by Him. So let's stop and listen to Jesus. And learn from him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you now asking that your word would do exactly what you say it will. When it's sent out, would you promise to produce fruit? So would it do that? Would your word produce the fruit that it is going to do, that you intend for it to do? God, would you do a mighty work here this morning to transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.